This is The Five of My Life with me, Nigel Marsh. The series where I talk to notable people about five of their defining things. The way it works is my guests always choose a favourite film, book, song, place and possession. They tell me their choices in advance so I can research them, but they don't tell me why they've chosen them. That's the subject of our conversation. The reason I devised this series is I wanted to create a slightly different way to gain an insight into the real lives and thoughts of prominent people. Professor Charlie Teo is a globally renowned neurosurgeon. Named most trusted person in Australia for the last five years consecutively, Charlie has a high profile as the surgeon willing to take on the cases others class as hopeless. As passionate about teaching as he is about performing surgery, Charlie also runs the pioneering Charlie Teo Foundation, the organisation he founded to fund brain cancer research. So, Charlie, when you chose your five, did you talk to your family and friends about it or did you do it in a solitary um, way? No, solitary. Okay, well, we're going to start with your film and you've chosen the 2002 film adaptation of Roderick Lublin's 1980s uh, novel, The Born Identity. Tell me about that, mate. I don't know. I just, I mean, I, I love watching movies. I travel a lot, so I virtually watch every movie that ever comes out. Because, I mean, I travel a lot. It's over 10 million miles. So you must be pleased when the months change, when they refresh the films. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Because, but yeah, you're right. By the end of the month, I'm I'm starting to go back and watch other movies that I've already watched. So uh, so it's not as if I'm not a movie file. I, I actually love movies. I've watched a lot of them, but it always comes back to the Bourne series. The Bourne Identity, of course, being the first one. But uh, believe it or not, and I think others would uh, agree, the other, the, what do you call it, where the uh, subsequent... Sequel. The, the sequels have been as good as the first one. I and, agree. And that's that's un, uncommon. Now, I have to ask, because um, this is about you, do you think subconsciously or consciously you identify with him, being the maverick that you are? Well, you know, I have to be very fit with what I do. And I must say that uh, as I was exercising this morning, I often think of <laughs> no, that. But when I was exercising this morning, I thought to myself, boy, Matt Damon must have just worked so hard to get his physique looking the way it did on The Born Identity and, and subsequent uh, sequels. And uh, yeah, so whenever I exercise, I think, gee, if he can do it, if he can have that sort of discipline, so can I. So yeah, when I exercise in the mornings, I think of, of Jason Bourne. It's interesting that the guy, Robert Ludlam, who wrote the, the trilogy, he died the year before the first film came out. But there's a guy who took over the series of the novels who's wrote 11 subsequent to Robert Ludlam. So there are, whatever that is, oh 14 God. born books. But the last 11 of them, written by a bloke called Eric Van... It's, it's like a porn name. Eric Van Lustbader. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So have you, have you read the books or, or you just, no. just, the, just the films? No, I don't get time to read books. So, yeah, just, just the films. So, so about you exercising this morning. Have, have you got a routine that you do every day or...? Yeah, yeah, no, everyday exercise. Uh, look, uh, many of the operations I do go for... Many hours, up to 16, 20 hours. Yeah, I read you did one for 26 hours. 26 hours was my longest one. That, that, you know, that was very rare, but it's not rare to have a 12-hour operation or a 10-hour operation. You really need to be physically fit, so I, I have to do that. So every morning I get up and I do about 200 sit-ups, about 50 to 100 push-ups, 
Uh, I've got the barbell, so I do some curls, uh, do do planking for core exercise, and uh, and uh, it usually takes about twenty to thirty minutes every morning. And then this is the first thing you do before you clean your teeth. You're on the you're shifting metals as soon as I get up. First thing I do before I brush my teeth and before I have a shower. Do wow. my ablutions. You well, you're, looking, you're looking good on it, but have you been doing that since a child, or is that a recent thing? Or no, no, almost since child. I can remember I used to love watching TV, so I would always do 10, 10 push-ups for every commercial between t- between TV shows. And then there was a time also that I was really into competitive sport. I I, uh, I did competitive karate, and I used to exercise like two or three hours a day then. But now, without uh, now that I'm time poor. It's just 20 to 30 minutes every morning. Now, now, for your book, we're moving from the, the world of fictional thriller to real-life drama because you have chosen principles and practice of keyhole brain surgery and uh, you co-authored that in 2015. Yes. Tell me about it. Well, it sounds a little bit self-serving, I guess, but uh, look... He's I, chosen his own book. My own book. Is, <laughs> is that allowed? <laughs> okay, so let me explain, though. The explanation is that I used to love reading books uh, when I was young. And then, again, as you get busier and busier, uh, books take a backseat. So the only books and the only journals I read now are neurosurgical journals. You have to do it. If you want to offer your patients the best care, You, it's uh, integral to maintain your knowledge of the current literature. You, you can't offer patients current, you know, contemporary, up-to-date the latest information uh, care unless you uh, unless you read. So I find myself just reading neurosurgical literature. And then of all the books that I read, I just, uh, my favourite book is my own book. And, and before, <laughs> be, before you say that's uh, it's incredibly uh, no, pom- own pompous. No, own it, Professor T.O., no, I love that. Well, it goes something like this. The other co-author was a guy called Mike Chagru, mm-hmm. and uh, who you'll be interviewing on this podcast one day, I'm sure. He's a genius. He will absolutely get the Nobel Prize for Medicine. Right. And he wrote the book. So, yes, it's my information. It's my patient load that he wrote about. And it's my experience that is reflected in the book, but it's in his words. And he puts a twist to it that that almost illuminates me about neurosurgery because I think, you know, no one's ever verbalized many of the concepts and philosophies about neurosurgery that I have adapted and, and, you know, learnt over the years, but Mike put it down on paper. So when I read what he writes, I go, actually, that's right, but I've never really thought about it like that. And so, you know, I, I, it's, a, it's a great book. It's a great read. It's a bestseller in neurosurgery. And uh, so of all the books that I've read recently, I like my own book the most. <laughs> that is fantastic. <laughs> and, and are you going to write another? Any plans? Yeah, yeah, we're writing uh, another two books. Uh, one of them is on uh, keyhole approaches to the brainstem, this no-go zone of the brain where no one else, uh, well, very few other people operate on. Uh, so we're going to write a book on a surgical approaches to the brainstem. And then Mike is also writing a book uh, on the new connections or uh, a different way of viewing the connections of the brain. And I'm going to co-author that, I think, yeah. And are you optimistic about sort of humanity's progress on understanding the brain, or is it going to be the, the you know a mystery forever? Oh no, we are absolutely now starting to understand the brain better. Many of the textbooks that we learn from and that are still being used in medical schools today are completely out of date. We have rewritten 
the whole concept of brain connections and brain function. For example, it used to be felt that there were about 40, 40 to 50 areas of the brain that were important, the motor part, the, the visual part, the uh, speech part. We now know there's about 180 per hemisphere, so there's over 360 parcellations or sections of the brain that were hitherto not even described. And that's through the utilisation of technology and MRI technology, different uh, data data analytics of all this information. And the machine learning now allows us to go one step further where we now realise that those connections, not only to those different parcellations, but those connections can be modified and, and are different in different people. So, for example, someone with a mental illness like depression or OCD or chronic fatigue syndrome, you know, we never scan them. You, you would interview them, say, yes, you've probably got depression, uh, but there was no test to identify what kind of depression or if they indeed did have depression. Well, now we can do that. Wow. We can actually now do a non-task-related functional MRI scan on someone just in a 20-minute scan and tell them that they have connections and networks that are different to a normal person and they have this type of depression that will then respond to this type of treatment. Hitherto, uh, until really this year, you couldn't do that. Uh, and uh, I'm pleased to say that Mike Shigrew and myself and our, and our centre here in Sydney are, are leading the way and, uh, and identifying those different connections. Amazing. My uh, my kids joke, God, all I want is respect, all I get is abuse. But my kids joke that mm -hmm. if I went in for an MRI scan, they would just be a, a, a toy monkey clapping singles. <laughs> <laughs> in my scan. None of those 130 divisions. Just a <laughs> now, so, so humanity progresses because we, we always ask questions and we're, we're curious and, and why, etc. Yeah. Uh, and that is my link to your song choice because you've chosen Annie Lennox's very first solo single yes. off her debut uh, solo album, Diva. You've chosen Why. So yes. why, mate? Why have you chosen Why? There's a few reasons why. The number one reason is because it was playing in the background when my firstborn came home from hospital and was in my arms. And I know this sounds incredibly uh, exaggerated, but as a newborn, in other words, she was less than six weeks old when, you know, you, a child normally only starts fixating with their eyes after about six weeks. But I swear... At five days of age, she was looking straight into my eyes. Is this Alex? Alex. Yeah. She was looking straight into my eyes. And she focused and fixed on my eyes and my stare while Annie Lennox's wire was playing in the background. And it was at that stage, uh, you know, it was, it was that aha moment where you realize that life is not all about you. It's, it's about, you know, your legacy and your children are your legacy and all of those things and the beauty about caring for someone else and having your DNA, you know, sort of du duplicated or replicated. and uh, After you're gone, there's going to be a little bit of T.O. running around yeah, <laughs> forever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that was, all, and it was also that I'd met Annie Lennox. Annie Lennox and Dave uh, Stewart, Stewart came out to Sydney uh, to play at a rock concert called Navara. And uh, that was in 1984, I think, with uh, the Eurythmics. And, uh, yeah, so I'd met Annie just briefly then. We ate some food together and uh, then Dave came ar around, so I was discarded. 
And uh, uh, so I have this very fond memory of Annie. And so every time I hear Annie Lennox's voice, it's mesmerising anyway. So, so they are a fascinating couple because completely different. So Dave's sort of arrogant, cocksure. I mean, both, you know, monstrously talented. Yeah. But she wrote that song when she'd just broken up uh, with him professionally. I didn't know uh, that. Her, her father had just died. She'd just become a mum. And she was um, in, in paroxysms, you know, sort of drowning in a sea of self-doubt. Can I, you know, do this without Dave? And then she just cracks out, you know, an iconic classic, you know, oh. on her own. You go, it's amazing how you can be equally talented and one person goes, well, I know I am. And someone else thinks, oh, well, I can't, I can't hold a tune. I can't write a song. And then you go, you're oh Annie Lennox, God. you know, isn't that amazing? Oh, my God, I didn't know. That. I just got goosebumps. Well, 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 the opening two lines of that song are some of the most beautiful words and singing of any song yeah, ever recorded yeah. and she said I, mean, I, I can't i can't sing it because i'm I, I can't sing but she says how many times do i have to try to tell you that i'm sorry for the things i've done oh my god and, and i need to ask you mate uh, what are your regrets oh not, you know nigel no one's ever asked me that isn't that weird well, I, I, that's the five of my life mate how many times have I been interviewed in my life? It's like... Uh, you know, I've been Googling you, and it's a lot. It's you are, a lot. You're not short of coverage, Charlie. No, and I like interviews because I, I'm very open, very honest, and I think that's why people like interviewing me, because it's quite raw, and it's uh, they know that there's no duplicity. But no one's ever asked me that. Well, this is good. So, so let's stick with it. You know, force yourself to think. And you can't say none, because I won't believe you. Yeah, okay. Uh... So one comes to mind, but it's a very superficial thing. I'll tell you about that in a minute. This is something more deep and meaningful. Uh, you know, Nigel, there isn't. You, they, I know, there's one, there's one thing I'll tell you about it, okay. but it's... They always say that you regret not what you do, it's what you don't do. Right. And when I was young, I wanted a beach buggy. Yep. I don't know why, but to me it represented freedom and the air in your uh, you know, blowing through your hair and uh, Chicky Babes and Bondi Beach and, you know, it had all these connotations. And so as my first car, and I saved really hard to get the money to buy a first car, I really wanted a beach buggy. And people talked me out of it, saying it was impractical, which is ridiculous because why would you want to be practical when you're, uh, you know, 18 years of age? And so it was the perfect time to buy one, it, it, and I've always regretted it. Uh, and that's the only thing. Now... So then I, just then I tried to think about some of the things that I've done that I might have regretted. I hit a guy once. This when you were a bouncer or just? No, no, I was a bouncer at the time. So I was a black belt in karate and uh, I was pretty tough and I had a lot of testosterone going around and uh, this guy did the wrong thing, absolutely. He was, uh, so he hit me uh, purposely on my motorbike and when I saw my girlfriend uh, injured, I lost my cool Someone pulled him over because they saw the whole thing and saw how wrong it was. I ran up to his car and I beat the crap out of him. Right. I was thrown in central uh, police station in a jail, uh, in a cell with a hardened criminal. I was wearing a three-piece suit uh, and he looked at me and thought, oh my God, what a Nancy boy. He's probably in here for evading you know, traffic fines or something. So he wouldn't talk to me. So it was just two of us sitting in this cell for about half an hour where he looked at me in absolute disgust. And eventually he goes, what are you in here for? And I go, uh, assault and malicious injury. 
And he goes, oh, really? Bonza. <laughs> yeah, great. He's one of us. And uh, and so then he started talking to me and we, uh, I must say, it was one of the best conversations I've ever had in my life where I, you know, it's a meaning of life and all that kind of stuff. And uh, because I got his respect for, because I was in for assault and malicious injury, then the police started treating me with, with a bit more respect and, and uh, I, you know, eventually got out on self-reconnaissance bail and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but it was a life lesson that I don't, I don't regret. Yeah. So, so what about other things that aren't your actions, but circumstances that have happened to you? So, uh, I mean, I don't know, you, you've, you've talked in the past about uh, your parents' divorce and maybe dad wasn't the dad that you ideally might have wanted or yes. so maybe your, your, the school you went to. I mean, I, I read something that actually brought tears to my eyes. I, mean, I, I think I sent you an email at the time going, those bastards yeah. who weren't nice to you. But do you... Do you regret any of the circumstances or, or you just think well it, it's made me the man I am so you know you take the rough with the smooth or? you know my upbringing was very Chinese which is very male chauvinist uh, and you've got four daughters that will teach you yes <laughs> and so in terms of circumstances I had a an odd upbringing where I wasn't uh, as respectful of women uh, as I should have been. I mean, I had a huge respect for my mother, but uh, I felt that a relationship, a male-female relationship, was the male telling the female what to do. But I still find I've got that with many of the relationships that uh, my female staff, I'm often very dictatorial. My girls, I'm very sort of... Uh, I, I still father-daughter, even though they're adults now. Previous girlfriends... Yeah, I'm, I'm still a little bit uh, tainted by my upbringing, that very, very Chinese, male chauvinist, male-dominated uh, type uh, relationship. Yeah. Wow. Well, listen, well, thank you for taking the question uh, honestly on the yeah, chin. But, so, again, well, I've like, never I, been asked that question. Yeah, but, but <laughs> so next time someone does, I think you might say, um, you know, it would have been... Uh, less suboptimal if my upbringing had a more enlightened view on gender roles or something. That's really interesting to see you working it through sort of live in front of me. Yeah. We're going to move to your place. Right. And, and I, I love this question for all my guests. And people have, you know, gone specific, like in the bath. They've gone, you know, 22 Church Street. <laughs> uh, but Mr. Tio, the bloke that chooses his own bloody book, has chosen America. <laughs> is that big enough for you, mate? Can we get uh, a little bit more uh, specific? The whole place, or is there any particular bits of it? Well, I hate to bring a negative component into the interview, but you do know that the tall poppy syndrome is alive and well in Australia. You know, it's very hard to deny that. And I've always been subjected to the tall poppy syndrome, mostly because I, not because I big note myself, but I'm very proud of my achievements and I'm very proud that I'm a good surgeon, good technician, care for my patients. So I, I don't, I'm not a wilting flower uh, when it comes to my skills. That's always worked against me in Australia. So much so that as I was going through neurosurgery, uh, many of my bosses felt compelled to put me in my place and I was fired taken off the neurosurgical program and, you know, punished for being good and knowing that I was good. But when I went to America... Oh they love God. that stuff. It's a real meritocracy, you know, and I, I'm sure there's a little bit of tall poppy syndrome everywhere you go, but it's certainly not prevalent in America. It's, in fact, the opposite. 
if you're good and you tell people you're good, they just love it. And uh, so you can give a talk in America where you say, you know, I've taken out these tumors, the patients did well. And people come up to you afterwards and go, I'd love to come and watch and learn from you. So in America, I have all these neurosurgeons, you know, watching me and learning from me. Of course, in Australia, it's exactly the opposite. And I, I realized that because when I came back from America, I thought, yeah, you know, I'm really good and I'm going to give a talk at the Neurosurgical Society meeting in Australia. And I gave this talk and my mum was sitting in the audience and she heard the people behind me, oh, behind her. And they were saying as I was giving the talk, yeah, right. As if, and they didn't believe me. Mm. And, uh, and I realized immediately that America was my place. And uh, so I I went back to America. I was only going to be in America for one or two years, but I just loved it so East much. East side, west side, where were you? I was in Little Rock, Arkansas. No, right. no, I was originally in Dallas, Texas, then Little Rock, Arkansas, and then I was seduced to uh, uh, to take up a chairman role in some of the programs over there. So I did a lot of interviewing, and eventually I accepted a, a job in uh, at UCSD in San Diego, but at that time, Genevieve wanted to come back to Australia. So I never took the chairman position and came back to Australia instead. It, it, it's a fascinating cultural insight. In, in, in my upbringing that was uh, English, it, it was the, like the worst sin would be big-noting yourself, mm. um, which is a sort of a, a variety of the tall poppy syndrome. So, so it's... It, I mean, I haven't done anything to be a tall poppy, so I, I wouldn't <laughs> encounter the tall poppy syndrome. But it, even if, you know, something, you know, minor, if you were to say, oh, gosh, I did that well. In, yes. in my upbringing, um, th- that was a nightmare. They wouldn't compliment because they'd be terrified that you'd, um, you know, think you that you had tickets on yourself. Yes, yes. Uh, and I, I spent three years living in America and was astonished by the difference. And in, in my speaking work... Uh, you know, I get embarrassed about the the introductions. You go, this bloke sounds great. Who is he? And you go, yes. it's you. Yeah. You go, who is it? I so didn't recognise that, myself. That's your English upbringing. The yes. fact that you get embarrassed about that is your English upbringing. When people introduce me and say all these nice things, I get embarrassed too. It's almost like, don't say that. Yeah, cut it down. Yeah, it? yeah. but in America, they stick out their chest and they go, thank you. <laughs> because that is me. Yes. And I'm proud of it. <laughs> and they should be proud of it. Yeah. Because just because you say you're good at one particular thing doesn't mean that you're good at everything. Like, you know, I'm the worst neurovascular surgeon, for example. I can't clip an aneurysm. Uh, and I'm not a good uh, sportsman. And I'm not uh, a Lothario. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very unattractive to look at. And so, you know, just because I say that I'm a great neuro... neuro no, not even a great neurosurgeon. I'm great at taking out brain tumors. That that gets translated by others as he's you know he thinks he's he thinks he's better than us. Right. I don't think I'm better than you. I know that I'm a better brain tumor surgeon, but I certainly don't think I'm a better person than you. Right. And uh, in America, they just have this ability to reward and uh, encourage excellence, and and it's a self serving thing. Then, so what happens is that oh my God, if I'm not going to be punished for being a good neurosurgeon, then I'm going to really strive to be a better neurosurgeon because I'm not going to be punished. I'm actually going to be rewarded for it as opposed to a tall poppy syndrome society where, you know, there's no incentive to be the best at your game because you know that when you get there, oh my God, you're going to have to, uh, you know, cut yourself down or else others are going to cut you down. It's quite a corrosive philosophy. I I went to a school uh, and this, God, if you ask me about 
you know, my many regrets, but where the culture, if you wanted to fit in, was, sounds awful, never trying. Yes. The worst thing you could do. You're like, oh, I haven't revised my, oh, I haven't done any work. You, you know, you, you get, you know, thumbs up yeah. if you failed. And you know, what a, I mean, how tragic is that? You're, you, you're, you're studying uh, and you're, you're educating yourself and the peer group is the best thing you can do is overtly not try and f*** up. <laughs> and if you passed your exams, or you passed them well, yes. is to keep that very, very quiet. Very quiet, yes. Yeah. Yes. Now, and I was uh, enlightened when I first left school and one of my friends took up a job as a labourer on a, a coal mo- in a coal mining place. And he told me, you know, they have to have these breaks. Like he had to have a half hour break for morning tea and he didn't want to. He didn't want to keep working. Oh my God. He was absolutely persecuted by his by his co-workers, how dare you make us look bad? You sit down and you take your half-hour break or else you're going to make us look bad. Yeah. And, uh, and that was all pervasive. And then I realised then that maybe, maybe Australia's not the place where I can really excel in something. Maybe I do need to go somewhere else. Do, so do you think you'll go back to the States or have, have you worked out how to sort of how to live in the Australian environment? Well... Look, there is no better place to live than Australia. So I'd like living here. And Australians are just lovely people. I mean, people are lovely all around the world, but I just love Australia and it's, and it's home. So I've tried to make it work here. And, you know, when I came back 20 years ago, I knew it was going to be hard when I came back. In fact, I sat down with my family and I said, look, we're going back to Australia, but as long as you understand that dad is not going to be as happy in his work environment there as he is in America, number one. Number two, I'm not going to earn as much money. Uh, And number three, there's going to be a lot of knives at my back. And as long as you understand that, I'm willing to accept it. And so I've been working here for 20 years and I was absolutely (laughs) right. (laughs) You certainly don't make as much money. You uh, certainly don't get the same job satisfaction. uh, And uh, there are knives poised at my back continuously. But I I have to say, mate... uh, um and this is me losing any journalistic um, uh, integrity because in, I'm going to be biased, is you and I have done work together and you are loved. You are absolutely, you produce adoration in people. So you are a polarising figure. So yes. some people, for whatever reasons, and it's been written about, so I, I, you know, I couldn't care everyone is, who amounts to anything as, you know, offside some people yes but you do evoke love in people I, I have been walking with you and we have been stopped three or four times by people clasping you with both hands and just you know prostrating themselves yeah. in front of you saying thank you thank you thank you you saved my mother's life you saved my daughter's life so it's uh no, it's a funny old world mate where people who do good stuff you know, then have to endure the other bit. And, may- yeah. and maybe that's an inevitable, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. No, look, I, d- I do understand that. And, I mean, that's part of the reason why I've per- persevered and I've lived in Australia because the people are just lovely. Complete mm. strangers come up to me yeah. and just tell me that they love what I stand for. You know, I've been voted the most trusted person in Australia and I often reflect on that and think, why did they choose me? And, you know, Genevieve said to me, it's because you represent something that no one else represents and that is, you know, total honesty and someone that they can actually trust. I mean, there's no duplicity, there's no fake fakeness about you. So even if they don't agree with you, 
And even if they don't like what you're saying, at least they know it's the truth and it's coming from a real place. Uh, but the trouble is that with all that adoration, I mean, they say that the adoration you desire most is the adoration of your peers. And yes, so I love the, the public and I love the way that they respect what I do and they uh, have given me these accolades and titles, but I would love to have the respect of my peers, of, of medical practitioners. And, you know, again, I'm, I would say without exaggeration, I know this sounds hyperbole, but I don't think there's ever been a doctor more hated than me uh, by, their, by, by their comrades, by their medical practitioners, fellow medical practitioners. It is so pervasive. So the doctors are all lined up against me and the public all lined up for me. So, so this is fascinating, Charlie. So, so I reckon we found two regrets. We've had the gender thing that you spoke about, yes. interestingly. But also, if I asked you that question again in a week's time when you had time to prepare, you, you would say, uh, if I could do it all over again, if I could find a way where my peers would recognise and support me rather than, you know, have a go, that, that would be a good thing. And, and it, it, I find it really... I mean, it, no, it, no, it no. angers me on on your behalf, mate. No, 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 it's not a regret because you're absolutely right. I would love to have their uh, acceptance, but I know that it will come with a price. Right. And so I don't regret that right. because the price is uh, being untrue to myself. Yeah. Or the, the term can be called anything, but it's all the same thing. It's all about uh, being a little bit untruthful so that you can gain someone's favour or improve your own sort of standing or, or something. And I will never do that. And I think that's why I've been voted the most trusted person in Australia because people know that I won't do that. Yes, I could have been diplomatic, but I chose not to and I've paid the price. And the price is a very heavy price, believe me. Oh, mate. Yeah. Well, listen, we're going to move to hopefully a happier yes. uh, topic because we are moving on to my favourite of the five choices, mm -hmm. which is your possession. All right. Usually people choose things that don't have any monetary value, you know, the, the scarf my granny gave me or yes. whatever. Um, uh, but I suspect that yours might actually have some monetary value because you've chosen a <laughs> motorbike, and I'm imagining it's not a Vespa, mate. <laughs> so what, tell me about that, Mr. Teo. What you, what, what's your bike? Okay, so... Yes, I'm going to alienate all the Vespa riders out there, but I wouldn't be seen dead on a Vespa. <laughs> I suspected. <laughs> oh, boy. So, again, I'm just being truthful. I think someone who rides a motorbike should ride a real motorbike and should ride it well. And the real motorbike that I've got is called an Aprilia. It's an RSV4 uh, 1000. Uh, it's basically a racing bike. Uh, and it's a... It's a uh, Poor man's excuse for a racing bike. Because so can you use it on normal roads or do you have you to be You can use it on normal roads, but it's a bit of a waste of time because you can't get out of first gear. Right. So, yeah, it is designed for the racetrack. Uh, and uh, so if you can't afford a racing bike or if you can't afford to race, this is the next best thing. It's beautiful. It's beautiful to look at because it's Italian styling. Uh, it's beautiful to ride because the electronics allow you not to be the best rider in the world and still be able to, you know, ride it fast. Uh, and, uh, yes, and I love it. Did I you mean, come on it today or? No, because it was, the roads were wet. Right. But, uh, it's my only form of transport. I've always had just motorbikes. When I was in America, I knew that I was getting older and my reflexes weren't as fast and I knew that I'd probably kill myself on the motorbike one day. So I chose a, a few nice cars. And in America, you can do that. So I bought a Porsche and a, 
and a Ferrari for before your audience gets too carried away for fifty thousand dollars, and uh, just to try and get rid of the motorbike bug. But uh, it didn't. It just didn't do it for me. Once you have the motorbike bug, it's very hard to get rid of that. And so I've gone back to motorbikes now. Uh, it's interesting. So for for me, uh, I, I've got two rules for my kids in my house, and and these are totally random, but mm-hmm. but they're absolutes. Is they can't watch professional wrestling. <laughs> so so I will throw them out the house if they want. It's just completely. They they could watch porn or violence, but they can't watch professional wrestling, uh, and they can't have a motorbike. Oh my goodness! Uh, and just random. There you go. No apologies. Uh, and that stems from the fact that the until recently, I'm I'm old now, so I know unfortunately a number of people who've died from other things because you do as you get to my age. Yes. Um, but for a long time, the only people who I knew who had you know predeceased me were yes. on. Bikes. Yes. And, so and here's my philosophy on that because two of my daughters are now riding riding oh, motorbikes. Yeah. No. Yeah, yeah, Charlie, yeah, yeah, no. Yeah. So Stop. Here's, here's my philosophy. And I've had to, of course, develop a philosophy because you're absolutely right. People kill themselves on motorbikes. Okay. So it goes like this. I believe, well, if you believe and I believe that you're put on this earth for so many, and you, there are so many different things that happen to you, good things and bad things, um, but... The number of thrills, for example, is limited. So everyone in their lifetime should get at least, you know, 160 thrills. So if you can achieve those thrills in a short period of time, then your life is complete. And every time I get on my motorbike, it's a thrill to me. I mean, I I enjoy it that much. I enjoy it that much that it's a joy to ride to work. It's It's a joy to go from A to B. As, as opposed to a joy being at B or doing something, right. a ride to destination B is the thrill and the enjoyment for me. Have you ever come off? Yeah, I've come off. I've been you know, close to being killed on the motorbike and, and I've had three or four very serious accidents. I've broken limbs. But again, I've always said to myself, if I die at a very young age, I've had so many thrills on that bike, I've, I've had my limit. You know, I've reached my limit. Yeah. Uh, wow, and, and so you haven't got a quiver of bikes, you've just got this one that you love. I've got six, about six bikes. Right. Yeah. And, uh, but again, before your audience think, that, gee, he must be so wealthy, I give them away. So I gave two bikes away to my daughters, and uh, my eldest daughter had a boyfriend, he's an ex-boyfriend, but he was a really good bloke, and I gave him a motorbike, and, uh, and I've still got two, so... Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Now, Charlie, we're going to come to the um, the sixth choice that I always ask my guests, um, which is, who do you want to hear on Five of My Life next? I'd like to hear my partner, uh, Mike Shabu. Right, yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I made a note of that. Uh, okay, so we, we will get on the um, we'll get on the blower to him. Yeah. I, I have to say, uh, the world is a better place because you are in it, mate. Oh, well, that's lovely. Nice. So Thank don't you. go dying too soon on that bloody bike <laughs> and and thank you for sharing your choices on the five of my life oh no it's a pleasure thank Charlie you for Taylor, you're me. a legend thank you the five of my life was presented by me nigel marsh producer alex mitchell sound production and theme music by darcy thompson and matt nicholish 